It's fascinating to reflect on the occasion of that hymn, and that is the visit of the wise men. Because you remember, they came and they innocently asked, where is the one who has been born the king? And that question threw Jerusalem into tumult. And it threw Herod into um, a fit. Because it was a threatening question. It's worth us reflecting on the fact that the peace of God through the birth of Jesus is threatening to those of us who would build our own kingdoms for our own glory. But it's a good threat, as Tolkien called it. It's a eucatastrophe. It's a catastrophe of abounding goodness because it destroys our plans in order to establish his. That's been the theme that we've been considering through Isaiah. Isaiah, you remember, went into the temple in the year that King Uzziah died, and he beheld the real king, the reigning king, the glorious king, the holy, holy, holy God. And he realized in that moment that since he is king, I am not, and neither is anyone else in this world. And knowing that, recognizing that, changes everything. And so that was the message that he brought to Ahaz early in his ministry, and the message that he brought to Hezekiah late in his ministry, and in the meantime, demonstrated the fact that we are slow to acknowledge the glorious reign of the holy, holy, holy God. And so the question arises, for a people who are instinctively and impulsively at war with the glory of the holy God, what hope is there? What is such a holy God to do with such a people? Conventional wisdom tells us that what he is to do is to destroy them. But the good news of God's grace that comes to us in Isaiah is that is not how this holy God operates. He responds with a double measure of his comfort, of his mercy, and of his grace in such a way that he establishes his peace in his world among his people. This fall, we've been considering exactly how it is that Isaiah understood that to be happening at whatever time it was that the Lord saw fit. And so today, we come to Isaiah chapter 66. And for those of you who are wondering, tomorrow, tomorrow evening will be our wrap-up to our series in Isaiah, well-timed. I had that in plan all along. <laughs> Read with me Isaiah chapter 66, the first 14 verses. Thus says the Lord, Heaven is my throne and the earth is my footstool. 
What is the house that you would build for me, and what is the place of my rest? All these things my hand has made, and so all these things came to be, declares the Lord. But this is the one to whom I will look, he who is humble and contrite in spirit and trembles at my word. He who slaughters an ox is like one who kills a man. He who sacrifices a lamb like one who breaks a dog's neck. He who presents a grain offering like one who offers offers pig's blood. He who makes a memorial offering of frankincense like one who blesses an idol. These have chosen their own ways. Their soul delights in their own abominations. I also will choose harsh treatment for them and bring their fears upon them. Because when I called, no one answered. When I spoke, they did not listen. But they did what was evil in my eyes and chose that in which I did not delight. So hear the word of the Lord, you who tremble at his word. Your brothers who hate you and cast you out for my name's sake have said, Let the Lord be glorified, that we may see your joy. But it is they who shall be put to shame. The sound of an uproar from the city, the sound from the temple, the sound of the Lord rendering recompense to his enemies. Before she was in labor, she gave birth. Before her pain came upon her, she delivered a son. Who has heard such a thing? Who has seen such things? Shall a land be born in one day? Shall a nation be brought forth in a moment? For as Zion was in labor, she brought forth her children. Shall I bring to the point of birth and not cause to bring forth, says the Lord? Shall I, who caused to bring forth, shut the womb, says your God? Rejoice with Jerusalem and be glad for her, all you who love her. Rejoice with her. Enjoy all you who mourn over her, that you may nurse and be satisfied from her consoling breast, that you may drink deeply with delight from her glorious abundance. For thus says the Lord, Behold, I will extend peace to her like a river, And the glory of the nations like an overflowing stream. And you shall nurse and you shall be carried upon her hip and bounced upon her knees. As one whom his mother comforts, so I will comfort you. You shall be comforted in Jerusalem. You shall see and your heart shall rejoice. Your bones shall flourish like grass. And the hand of the Lord shall be known to his servants. And he shall show his indignation against his enemies. Brothers and sisters, this is the good news of the Lord to us this day on this fourth Sunday of Advent as we anticipate the celebration of Christ's birth. So let's go to him in prayer, asking that he would grant us eyes to see and ears to hear. And so, Father, we do ask that by your Spirit now, once again, you would declare and command peace Be still. And so cause the winds and the waves that threaten to distract us and capsize us, that rage within us and without us, to be still. And cause us, 
like the disciples on that day, to stand in wonder, to behold Jesus among us, Emmanuel, and so be changed. To that end, feast us upon this, your word, for we pray it in Jesus. Amen. I'm a dad, which means that I get to tell dad jokes. It's one of the great privileges of being a father. So, what do you get when you cross a bear with a skunk? Winnie the Pugh. was good. I got the eye nod from my son. <laughs> what do you get when you cross a cow with a lawnmower? A lawnmower. Ah. What do you get when you cross a cow with a trampoline? Oh, milkshake, I'm proud of you. You're a good dad. <laughs> Someone's going to be hearing that one again. What do you get when you cross a fly, a car, and a dog? A flying carpet. Ha, ha. <clears throat> okay, here's a really hard one. What do you get when you cross an elephant with a rhino? Elephino. <laughs> I did not cuss from the pulpit. Just saying. What do you get when you cross an elephant and a witch? <laughs> Grace, I'm concerned. I, I don't know either, but you'll need a very big broom. <laughs> Are you relieved? <laughs> it's really interesting what you can tell about your congregation by watching how they respond <laughs> and the answers they come up with. What do you get... When you cross the justice of God with the mercy of God, you get peace like a river. Peace like a river. An overflowing, flooding river. Some jokes lose their luster and their humor, the more you think about them and the more you try to explain and understand them. This mystery, however, the justice of God and the mercy of God coming together, as strange and as humorous as it may at first appear, bears up under the weight of scrutiny. And the more you explore it, the more you try to understand it, the more glorious 
And well, really, the more quite laughable and hilarious it becomes. Now, some of you actually may be offended by the notion of God's glory, God's justice, and God's mercy as laughable. But keep in mind, there is a reason that Isaac was named Isaac, son of laughter. Because he would reveal and cultivate the laughable joy of the Father's unexpected and unimaginable glory and grace. So I want us to consider the conditions and the nature of our Father's laughably glorious peace that is sparked and that is released when His justice and His mercy come together in an entirely unexpected and unimaginable way. Our text <clears throat> opens. Thus says the Lord. This is the concluding chapter of Isaiah's ministry. Thus says the Lord. Heaven is my throne. The earth is my footstool. What is the house that you would build for me? What is the place of my rest? Just a couple things to note. One, this is the only place where the earth itself is described as the footstool. We hear the temple described as the footstool. We hear the altar in the temple described as the footstool. This is the only place where we hear the earth as described as the footstool. Why is that? Because the God we serve is so big that this world, as big as it appears to us, is but an ottoman, a footstool for the king. So big is this God that we serve, this covenant-making, covenant-keeping God that we serve, that there is no house that can contain him. Remember Solomon's prayer when he built that temple? Who, who am I that I think that I can build something that can contain you? And you're right, Solomon. There is nothing. But the people, as glorious as that temple was, lost sight of the fact that their God was so much more glorious than the temple itself that the temple paled in comparison. The fact is, everything that you think that you would bring to me, I made. It's all mine. That gold, it's all mine. That silver, it's all mine. All of those perfectly hewn rocks that, that, you, that you carefully measured and carved in the quarry before bringing it to the temple site, is all mine. The quarry is mine. The cedars of Lebanon, they're mine. All of them, they're mine. It reminds me of one of my favorite scenes in one of my favorite movies, which will remain unnamed, where the guy asks his brother or his cousin, 
for money because he wants to buy him a really nice gift. You've been revealed. That's what's going on. Anything, anything, anything that we think we want to bring to the Lord, it's already His. I will give you my whole self, God. Well, that's great. You're already mine. I made you. I sustain you. I feed you. I guard you. I guide you. You're mine. Don't think you're doing me any favors. Is kind of what's going on here. Well, what's a guy to do then? How can I please you, O oh God? Well, this is the one I look to. He who is humble and contrite in spirit and trembles at my word. He who recognizes who I am and who they are. It's a stunning passage, just those first two verses. We could spend a lot of time there. The fact is that our God reigns whether we want to acknowledge that or not. Our God reigns in justice and holiness and righteousness and mercy whether we want to acknowledge that or not. And he is right to reign because he made it all. You recognize that Isaiah is, is climaxing his ministry, the record of his ministry here with the same, in the same way that Job ends. The source of your sorrow is your failure to recognize that I am God. I, I have displayed my power. I have made it. Now we know how he made it. Light, light. Mountains, mountains. He made it by the word of his power. He spoke and it happened. He reigns. He rightfully reigns in authority because by his power displayed, he has made all things and sustains all things. <clears throat> and the fact is that his ownership of all of that is proven by the mighty works of his steadfast love by which he sustains and guides all things. Throughout the world's history, throughout Israel's history, throughout your history, throughout my history, even as we have heard testified to already today. But it's not only the fact of God's rightful and transcendent authority that is on display here, it is the nature of that display. Because remember, since chapter 40 all the way up to chapter 66, we have been getting a glimmer a growing glimpse of how this God reigns. He is not a tyrant, but he is a God of abounding double comfort. And that's how he rolls. 
most gloriously seen in the gift of this yet unnamed servant who will execute with perfection the wisdom of this God's authority and power. The mercy of God's justice exercised over a world gone horribly wrong in its rebellion against him is what this servant will accomplish. And so we see the effect and fruit of this rule upon the reign, upon his world. It generates a humility, a contrition, an awe. Elsewhere in Scripture, we call it fear, this trembling. The Israelites felt it at the foot of Mount Sinai. And so let's look a little bit more closely at how this God rightly exercises his authority. Verses 3 and 4. God's justice is exercised and is played out by God's design. He who slaughters an ox like one who kills a man, he who sacrifices a lamb like one who breaks a neck, he who presents a grain offering like one who offers a pig's pig's blood, makes memorial offering like one who blesses an idol. There are these there's these four pairs. In the first part of each pair, he's actually naming something that is actually a part of Israel's worship. And in the second part of the pairing, he's actually describing the the very things that are forbidden. And so it appears that in the exercise of their obedience, they're accomplishing its opposite. How does that work? It's important to understand that throughout the ministry of Isaiah, one of the, one of the charges that, I, that the Lord has brought against his people through his messenger Isaiah is that in, the, in their sincerity of worship, they have in fact been exercising idolatry. Isaiah 58 is the clearest example of that. And so here we have another one of those summaries that, that in what you believe to be your sincere exercise of your religious practices, you are, whether consciously or unconsciously, actually aiming to secure for yourselves your dreams and your lifestyle choices. You're seeking actually to leverage from God that which he had, has already so freely and generously granted. Keep in mind, this is exactly what was happening with Ahaz and Hezekiah later. Ahaz had his plan for how he was going to secure Jerusalem. And it did not include the mighty acts of God's steadfast faithfulness. Hezekiah, in fact, was was, um, granted release from Sennacherib in his day... But his response reveals that it's all about him. Their sincerity 
revealed that they were aiming to secure for themselves their dreams and their lifestyle choices. And Isaiah presents those two covenantal heads, those two kings, as embodiments of the very heart of Israel, of God's chosen people. It's what we see in the garden. But notice what happens. Notice this, at the end of chapter 3, at the end of verse 3 and into verse 4. They have chosen their ways. I will choose, shall we say, my way. Their soul delights in their abominations. The end of verse 4. They did what was evil in my eyes. They chose that in which I did not delight. It's hard to recognize what is happening there. They are making their choices. They are doing that which delights their own heart, that which what seems right in their own eyes. And then they are surprised and angry when their God doesn't deliver. You see... They have chosen their own ways. Their soul delights in their abominations. Verse 4, second, second, little, um, second stanza there. I will choose, or first stanza, I will choose harsh treatment for them and bring their fears upon them. God's justice is part of God's design. They choose these ways and they will find their own destruction. You see, the world was structured and designed to run on the wonder and worship of the triune God for who he is to the praise of his glory. And when that is not happening, there will be consequences. It is not a design flaw. It's user error. I had to call customer uh, tech support the other day. I got a new computer. I had to call tech support the other day because something wasn't working right. And the guy said, so what happens when you push the power button? What kind of insulting question is that? I know the power button. The assumption, of course, being that it's user error. It turned out it was user error. <clears throat> You've heard people say it. You've heard especially your tech support people say it. The computer will do what you tell the computer to do. Our creation is structured and designed to run on the wonder and the worship of the triune God. And when that is not happening, things fall apart. When that is not happening, there are consequences. It's not a design flaw. It's user error. 
And the wicked, you see, are committed to the way of their own destruction, although they don't know that. And this is the nature, in fact, of what Scripture calls wickedness. The pursuit of God's world and God's goods in God's world for one's own end. It's idolatry. It's adultery. It's wickedness. You see, the heart of flourishing holiness for which we hunger and thirst is living and loving in God's world according to God's design. When we seek to live and love in God's world according to our design, according to our passions, and according to our priorities and our goals, our dreams and our desires, things fall apart. It's an interesting thing to assert. But notice what happens. Verse 5. So hear the word of the Lord, you who tremble at his word. Who is that? Remember verse 2, the end of verse 2. The one whom the Lord looks at, delights in, is the one who is humble and contrite in spirit, trembling at my word. So now, addressing them, you who tremble at my word, You who know that when I speak, it happens. You who know that I created all things, sustain all things. You who know that it is by my glory that all things live and breathe and have their being. Hear the word of the Lord, you who tremble at that word. Your brothers who hate you, those that have been just described in verses 3 and 4, Your brothers who cast you out for my name's sake, saying, Let the Lord be glorified, that we may see your joy. It is they who shall be put to shame. And so, verse 6, there is this great uproar, this sound from the temple, the sound of the Lord rendering recompense to his enemies. What is that? It is the revelation of his glory, the revelation of the glory of the triune God. Holy, holy, holy God. The king upon the throne. That's what it sounds like when the Lord comes to reveal his glory. That's what it sounds like. You see, the reliability, the wisdom of God's design is, in fact, the hope of God's people. It's not that we get it right. It's not that we do all the right things. But it is that He is the good and wise and trustworthy designer of all things. That is our hope. That is our hope as men, as women, as mothers and fathers, as parents and children, as workers and employees. Which is why, by the way, Paul uses those pairings in Ephesians. The hope of God's people is the reliability, the wisdom of God's design rooted in the worship and the wonder of God's glory. 
because the design is rooted in and driven by the central virtue of the triune God's holiness, which is the steadfast love of the Lord that endures. We find it on almost every page of Scripture, not least in Exodus chapter 34. The steadfast love of the Lord that endures forever. As foolish as the design may appear, what? Honoring the Sabbath day? I have so much to do. I can't possibly sacrifice 24 hours just to worship. As foolish as the design may appear, and that we think on a deep level that it is foolish and unreliable is in fact borne out by the idolatries of our habitual unbelief, yet it regularly vindicates itself in mundane and routine and, yes, miraculous ways. And that is our hope. He's not second-guessing his design. And that is our hope. He doesn't come up with plan B or C or D or however many other alternative plans you want to come up with. And that is our hope. This is why the first movement of faith is the wonder and awe that expresses itself in humility and contrition and trembling at his word. When, in fact, that is what we see and that is how we respond, what we find is that we are carried into a condition of flourishing holiness that the Spirit himself has created, that the servant himself by the power of the Spirit has created. And so we get into this verses 7 through 14. And these are the verses that we like to read, especially the last portion of them that we really like to read in in days like this. Before she was in labor, she gave birth. Before her pain came upon her, she delivered a son. Who has heard such a thing? Who has seen such things? Shall a land be born in one day? Shall a nation be brought forth in one moment? The understood answers to to those questions are, well, of course not. For as soon as Zion was in labor, she brought forth her children. Shall I bring her to the point? Shall I bring the promise to the point of birth? and yet not cause to bring forth? Shall I, who cause to bring forth, shut the womb? No. Because I am the God of steadfast faithfulness to what I promised, to my design. So, verse 10, Rejoice with Jerusalem and be glad for her, all you who love her. Rejoice with her and joy, all you who mourn over her, that you may nurse and be satisfied from her consoling breast, that you may drink deeply with delight from her glorious abundance. Because this is who Jerusalem is. This is the locus of the floodwaters of my glory and peace. 
For thus says the Lord, I will extend peace to her like a river and the glory of the nations like an overflowing stream. You see, when God secures for his people his mercy by the exercise of his justice upon the wicked and their wickedness, the floodgates of his peace are opened and it flows to Jerusalem and through Jerusalem to flood the nations with the wonder of it all. This is what the psalmist has in view when he speaks of God's righteousness, which is another way of translating this word, justice and mercy have kissed. They've come together. And this is what Paul is meditating upon throughout Romans, but most clearly and centrally and powerfully in Romans chapter 8. The justice of God exercised in, right, in perfect righteousness secures for his people the, his mercy and releases the floodwaters of his peace. <coughs> and so I will comfort you, verse 13. And so you shall be comforted in Jerusalem. You shall see and your heart shall rejoice. Your bones shall flourish like the grass. The hand of the Lord shall be known to his servants, and he shall show his indignation against his enemies. The justice of God against the wickedness in the world secures for his people the mercy of God and so causes the peace of God to flow like a river. You see, brothers and sisters, the peace of God is rooted in the wonder of God. There's no strategies. The strategy to knowing the peace of God is standing in wonder the glory of God's wisdom and power and authority exercised with steadfast love and faithfulness. It's what the Old Testament calls the mighty works of God. It's what the New Testament calls the mighty deeds of Jesus. It's what we call testimonies of God's grace. Brothers and sisters, it is not for sentimental reasons that we invite people to stand up and bear testimony to the mighty acts of God's grace in their life. It is absolutely essential to knowing and participating and celebrating the peace of God that is ours by the mighty work of Christ's birth. That didn't just happen years ago. But that thing that happened years ago continues to ripple and to reverberate throughout history and throughout every life. That birth is revolutionary. That birth is the mightiest act of them all. God in the flesh, Emmanuel. So Bonhoeffer writing... Dietrich Bonhoeffer, writing to a friend of his in 1939, wrote this. No priest, no theologian stood at the cradle in Bethlehem. 
how could it be significant if there were no priest or no, no theologian there? No priest, no theologian stood at the cradle of Bethlehem, and yet all Christian theology, indeed all of Christian life, has its origin in the wonder of all wonders that God became man. Sacred theology arises from those on bended knees who do homage to the mystery of the divine child in the stall. Because that is the mighty glory of the triune God, creator, sustainer, redeemer God. You see, all Christian theology, all Christian life, in fact, what Isaiah is saying here in chapter 66, is all Life of all peoples in all places has its origin in the glorious wonder of these historic facts. God creates, God sustains, God promises, God comes, God delights to make his dwelling with man as a man. God makes all things new. What are you celebrating? At Christmas. Are you celebrating Emmanuel? God with you? God with us? God in his world? To make all things new. <laughs> if you are not laughing. at the absurdity of the Christ child as nothing less than God in the flesh, then you don't know what you're seeing. Because that is crazy talk. Do you want to know the peace of God during this season? then lay aside the sentimentality and commercialism and consumerism of Christmas and behold the glory of it all, the wonder of it all, the birth of Jesus. Because in the birth of Jesus, we see emerging before our very eyes the justice and the mercy of the triune God coming together in order to explode open the floodgates of his promised peace. That is the revolution that we celebrate when we sing about God's peace and God's wonder. Look at it. Stare at it. Marvel at it. Rejoice in it. Rest in it. Be refreshed by it. Taste it. See it. Savor it with rejoicing in celebration of his birth. And so, Father, we come and we ask that you would strengthen us, as Paul prayed, by your spirit, that we may, in fact, behold your glory, the wonder of it all, and stand with humility and contrition and trembling joy, knowing 
that in the birth of your son, Jesus Christ, you have